Who enjoyed their extra hour of sleep? Yeah. I find that gets the biggest response. The only problem with your extra hour of sleep is simply this. Um, as the youth are, are taking off, you're in junior high or high school, feel free to take on out of here and uh, go join their, what they're doing right now. But you know, one of the problems I noted with our extra hour of sleep is that you don't have any excuse. You have to go to work tomorrow, right? You can't like be like, oh, I'm, I'm tired. I'm sick of work. So just because you're, you're, you don't have any excuse, I'm going to give you some excuses. I kind of went on the internet to look up some of the best excuses that are possible out there to give your boss or your, or your worker, and don't say you got this from church, but you know, this is a, uh, some of these are just humorous. Apparently they're real ones that people have given, like my brain went to sleep and I couldn't wake it up. I didn't know what that one meant, but this one I've heard of, I think this actually happened to somebody in our church. My feet and legs fell asleep when I was sitting in the bathroom. And when I stood up, I broke my ankle. That is nuts, but I actually believe that did happen to somebody in our church once. Um, I'm stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store. Yeah, here's your sign. Um, I have a gallstone and I want it to heal holistically. Um, I put in my uniform in the microwave to dry it and caught it on fire. Yeah, and this is the one that I thought was intriguing more than funny. I was like, I, got, I accidentally got on a plane. What's the rest of that story? How do you wind up? Where did you go? A hitman was looking for me. Okay. And the best one, I like this one, is I woke up in a good mood and I don't want to ruin it. So... You know, that kind of gets at the sentiment of, our, of us in work in a lot of ways that work feels like one of those things that you get up and you have to do. And in the United States here today, in the North American culture, one of the difficulties is this idea that you and I are going to spend the majority of our lives at work. You've done tons of time that you're going to be working in for somebody or at an industry or in some case like this. And if you're a, 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 mom, a stay-at-home mom or dad, you never stop. You're always working. It's 100%, 24-7, all the time. And so there's a reality that we don't get, a, that we're going to spend a lot of time in work. And there's a lot of confusion about work. And so in this series, we're going we're gonna to do a Thinking Biblically series. We're going to be doing a bunch of these over the, over the lifespan of the church. But this is our first one. And we're locking into this thing called about work. We really want to lock into what is this thing called work? How does work work anyways? Because the bottom line is we've all gotten to that place where we've called in sick because we're sick of work. And um, sometimes it's because we don't know what it's about. In fact, many Christians have come to the belief that work is just a part of the fall. It's one of those necessary evils that we have to put up with until Jesus comes back. Because when Jesus comes back, we're going to end up in, in, in heaven. And you know what heaven's like. Oh man, we sit next to the lakes and the rivers and we don't do anything. We, we eat, we drink, we're merry. It's just this eternal retirement plan that we are in forever and ever and ever and ever. And of course, what's the one thing everybody asks? Doesn't that get boring after a while? Yes, it does. And that's not what heaven is. In fact, as we'll discover that there's a lot more to work then we will notice. And it doesn't have anything, it has some things to do with the fall, but at first, it doesn't have anything to do with human sinfulness and something we have to do. In fact, human sinfulness has led us to feel like work is a drudgery. When you were in high school, maybe you asked the question, why do I have to learn this? Anybody ask that question? Why do I have to learn this? And, and the answer was given to you, so you, can get a, so you can get a good education. Well, why do I have to get a good education? So you can go to college. Why do I have to go to college? So you can get a good job. Why do I have to get a good job? So you can make lots of money. Well, why do I have to make lots of money? So I can have a really good life. That's pretty much our standard American answer now. And I find that sad. 
Because really what that comes down to is that you and I are going to live a life where we're expecting to have to work to make to have a good living. And so we wake up in the morning in a house that we owe on and we get out of a bed that we're still paying on in order to eat food that we put on our credit card to get in our car that we're still paying for, to put gas in our tank that's coming out of our pocketbooks, to get on a road that we're wearing down and we got to pay taxes to fix because we're driving to work. We get into work and we work our day there where we have to buy certain things to make ourselves feel like we're alive in our cubicles, only to go to lunch where we pay for our lunches and we come home, drive on that same road to ruin it some more so we can pay more taxes on it and get ourselves all the way back to our home. So basically the answer to life is you work not to get money and have a good life. You work to work. That's it. We work to work. Or as the bumper sticker says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. That's the reality of our life. But that's not the vision of the Bible. That is not the vision of work found in Scripture. And what I find interesting is that the, the vision of work found in Scripture actually doesn't have a lot to do with, um, at first, with the things that we associate with work. So let's look at this vision. Let's get a start. And it's found in Genesis chapter 1. So if you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible and begin with us on page 1. We're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. Because the origin of work is important. And it's very interesting when we look at it. And so let's, let's do this together. Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1... We have the, the, what is called the creation narrative. For those of you who may not have ever read through your Bibles or maybe you popped in the beginning, it's a really fascinating section. But he begins like this. He says, chapter 1, it says, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what's going on here is simply this, that God is going to begin this, his created. He's going to create the heavens and the earth, everything that there is, the universe as we understand it. And so note the words formless and void. It's the thing that he creates doesn't have form at first. It's empty. And so he moves into this interesting situation. It starts this, verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, stop right there for a second. I find this really interesting, because there's lots of debates out there. Just set the debates aside right now. And look at the text. What does it say? It says, God starts off, and he says, let there be light. And he separates the light from the darkness, creates day and night. And so he has this thing. And then he says this words. Right here, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Evening and morning. So there was evening, which was when we went to bed, and there was morning, that's right now. What's in between? Night. Somebody's yelled in first service, sleep. That's right, you know. <laughs> There's this gap called night. Here's what's strange God's creating. In fact, He's creating during a day. And when it comes to night, he's not doing anything. And what you see here is a system of work. God is actually working. In fact, he's going to work on the first day, he creates the day and the night. The second day, during the day, and every time, it's evening and morning, and there, and he's some, there was evening, there was morning, and then he's back up working again. And so you have this reality that day one is, is this light and darkness. Day two is this sky and the seas, and the next day is the ground. So he's formed the world. 
Then he starts to fill it. On the next day, he puts the stars in the night and the sun in the day. Then you move forward and he puts the birds in the sky and the fish in the water, filling the very same things as you go along. Day six, finally, he gets to the land. And look, let's pick up on that day here in, day, in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts in the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so suddenly God says, okay, we've got all this culmination, and he lands on humanity, making humanity on this sixth day, and telling them, you guys are going to govern all the things that I've made. Male and female, all of you, you're all going to govern everything that I've made. So he lays all this out. What's interesting is he capstones his work week on day six, and then on day seven, as you read in chapter two, verse one, he takes a break. The heavens and the earth were finished, all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his what? Those of you who are reading it, yell it. God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work. Say work. Notice what he's doing. What is he doing? Who's working? Now, this should fascinate us. Because all of us, you know, ancient history buffs who like to sit around and read about ancient Mesopotamian um, creation narratives, which is probably me, um, you know, kind (laughs) of, it's a boring life, I'm sorry. But the idea is simply that we're sitting around reading this, and what you find is never a God who's at work. You find Tiamat and this person fighting and cutting each other in half and spilling their guts, and that's the land, and that's the sky, and the bugs come crawling out of this and that. It's always this cosmic war scene. It's always about the gods being, making this cosmic mishmash and it all becomes something. And then later they come along and they create humans and the humans are there to serve them. They're going to sit back and eat and drink and be merry and it's the humans that are going to work. And work is an imposition upon human beings. It's not something gods involve themselves with. The Greeks were so into this, they claimed that it was part of the evil of being stuck in your body that you had to work. And they thought the contemplative life, sitting around thinking, was the greatest form of living you could possibly get to. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible begins with a God at work. God's the one working. He's not looking down, being annoyed, and saying, humans, do something, you're bugging me. Which is what they do in the other ancient religions. But here, God's at work. God is working a work week. He can make everything in his work week. And he takes a break. And what's fascinating about this is that it begins to tell us very clearly about who we are. See, work is not a necessary evil. It's an eternal thing. And it's eternal because God is the one who works. And God works, so we work. There's an equation going on here. God works, so we work. In fact, what's interesting is God's work it shows that it's good. He, it's not an evil thing. And his work is actually technically called providence. It's the idea of not only his creative power after the first week, he then rests. He doesn't create anymore. He now enters into a state in which he provides. And in his provision, as he provides for all of his creation, we call it providence, the provision. 
And he's using everything together. We'll get into this. But first of all, we need to know that God is not done. In fact, here in Psalm 145, David recognizes this. He says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. It's speaking of God as the owner who works and provides for everybody, like a father, like a parent in a home, like a mother in a home. And this provision is given out. And he doesn't just do it himself. He can actually do it through people. If you own a company, you understand that your job, your primary job is to run the company. Well, what does that mean? You had a dream if you founded the company that there is a good or a service that you wanted to provide to people. And one day you found that it was way too much to do all the work yourself. You need to have good accounting. You needed to actually go clean the windows or do whatever service or build that thing. And so you found you can't do it all as you began to serve more and more people. And so you employed someone. What you're doing, though, is you're serving and providing through that person to your customer. This is the same thing God does for us. He's providing through human beings to serve and care for us. Go again to verse 22. 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Let's, let's make man like us and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He has said, look, let's give them the right, employ them as our under sovereigns, the management for the earth. And so God literally provides through people. This is really important. Martin Luther picked up on this in the Reformation. And in his book on work, he literally told people, look, the farmer is a dignified person because we receive our food from God through them. God is using them and bringing us what we need, our provision, so let us praise God. This is important to us Americans who think we are self-made people. That when it comes to our work, one of the things that we are doing is we are making everything go for us. I bought my car. I got my house. I made sure that I had the food. I am a self-made man, we're told. But God says, hold on. I use you to serve others, and I use others to serve you. I'm the one that your provision comes to, comes from. And what he's saying is, everything that we have, then, is a gift. That's what James said. Every good and perfect thing comes from the Father of lights. And when we do that, it does one number on our pride. That it is about thankfulness and humility when it comes to our work. It's one of the best things I hear from really successful business people that I know in our church. I ask them, so how's it going? They say, I'm blessed. Man, you've made a lot of money. That's awesome. Nope, God's just really blessed me. They're right. That when they come with that same mentality of humility from the blessings they've received, they're more likely to give it away then to hold on to it as well. Because they realize they're a provision as well. That God is providing through us and to us, through each other, is a huge honor. It's part of being made in his image. It's part of being made in the image of God. In fact, God wants you to know something. There's no work that should be beneath us. Haven't you heard in our, in our conversation of late how, how much work is beneath us? And since 2008, I've heard a lot of conversations about, oh, let's let the illegal immigrants have the jobs that no American would, would work. You heard that statement? Yeah? Yeah, I've heard it. I found it, I found it interesting. I also found it interesting that the statistic of many men and women would not return to the work world because it wouldn't pay them as much as they used to be paid because there was a prestige attached to the work that they did. It was below them in some way. Interestingly enough, God finds no work beneath him. 
God finds no work beneath him. In fact, today he works right now. Jesus said in John chapter 15 or 5 verse 17, he says, my father is working until now and I am working. And there's a connection. What was the job that Jesus did? Well, Jesus came on earth. He was God in a bod showing up to show us what God is like. What's interesting about Jesus is that as he walks around, he's God. He doesn't go, I'm hungry. Bread. All right, give me some bread here. Oh, servants. Sorry, I got some servants. He didn't just use his God powers to create everything he wanted. He didn't serve himself at all. In fact, it was the devil that said, hey, turn the stones into bread. And he said, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust God's word. I'm not going to make myself food. What's interesting about this reality is that Jesus comes and doesn't use his godlike powers to serve himself. He comes to a family, not a king's family, not a rich kingdom, but a poor man in a home in an obscure town called Nazareth, who, as we call him, Joseph was a carpenter. That's what we like to say. Jesus was a carpenter. The word used for Joseph and what Jesus likely would have learned is the word technon, which interestingly enough doesn't just mean carpenter. It means something to the sense of construction worker. He is a person who would lay stone, wood, whatever, whatever was used to build stuff, that's what Jesus did. He was a technon is the term. He was a general contractor in a sense. What's interesting enough about Jesus is as a general contractor, as a technon, as somebody who used his hands to work in the dirt and move stuff around, that was considered the worst kind of work in the ancient Roman world you could possibly do. That's slave labor in their mind. But Jesus also entered into that. In fact, what's interesting about Jesus, he probably had to live as a subsistence farmer quite often. When he couldn't get work to build something, he would have to hire himself out as a day laborer, and he would have entered into the fields, cutting down wheat or planting or sowing, doing the work that many people hired or, ha- or bought slaves in the ancient world to do. And so what's interesting is Jesus, Jesus' parables, if you read them, always deal with the farm life and the building world. The two references that he understood from his early life before ministry. Jesus didn't find any of that demeaning. He didn't find any of that below him. In fact, he would have been equivalent to what we would think of somebody who just mows our lawns in the mentality of many Americans. And I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just pointing out how we think. And Jesus takes that on himself. In fact, he takes on the worst job known in the ancient world. And the night before his death, he actually donned the the robes of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. There was no job below God. He was willing to get as dirty and muddy and nasty as necessary to serve human beings and to worship his father. Here's what's beautiful about that. I don't know what you all do for a living, but as long as it's not an industry where we promote sin and produce sin, which is a longer conversation, What you do is honorable before the God who works. You see, he works, so we work. He made you and I in his image to work. The other day, my son Nate came into the kitchen. And I looked at him like, hey, buddy, how are you doing? He's like, oh, good. I'm like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he goes, when he was younger, I'd ask him this question. He goes, I want to be a pastor. And I'm like, that's okay. You be what you want to be, you know, just you pray about that. And now he comes in, I know it's different. He goes, what do you want to be? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, come on, tell me what you want to be. He's like, I want to be an inventor. And I'm sitting there going, yeah. Because you know what I answered when I was his age? 
An inventor. It was an archaeologist, then an inventor. You know, so, but an invent, I had a big piece of paper I draw inventions and stuff on. And I'm just, there's something about a dad when your kid says, I want to be like you, dad. I want to do the same thing you want to do. I'm just like, oh, like father, like son, that's so cool. This is awesome. I think the father in heaven feels the same way when we work. The Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made us in his image. And when we work, he goes, they're just like me. I made them to work and they're working and it brings him honor and it gives him a sense, I believe, in a right way that they are being what I've made them to be. They're workers. What kind of, in a sense, guys, we're made to work. What kind of work are we made to do? Because that can sound really bad. You're made to work. Oh, great. We're made to work. We'll get why work stinks. We'll do that next week. This week's just the cool part of why God, what God intended with work. And what we're looking at here is that we are made to make something of this world. We are actually made to create culture, to, to take what God has made and make something of it. Notice how this works. Go again, back down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are made to work. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what's beautiful about this is we work because we're made to work. We're made in God's image. That connection actually means that it fulfills us. Work is fulfilling. Work has a satisfaction about it. It is something that is instilled inside of us and we need to do it. It's interesting. I was reading years ago a book referenced to me called Delivering Happiness. And uh, it's written by a man named Tony Shea. He's pretty popular in the business world because of, he was the, he's now the president of Zappos, or was at the time he wrote the book. And Zappos is part of Amazon and the culture and all that comes from him. What's, what's fascinating about his book is that this young man, at the age of 24, 25, had sold a business he made in college for $40 million. Can you imagine being that young? You've got $40 million in the bank. You're retiring. You're done. He's made the American dream. He's hit what all these, all the younger people I know are aiming for. I don't want to make much and retire early. Well, he had it. Had himself sitting around, throwing some money at venture capitalist stuff. Like, oh, I'll fund that. That sounds like fun. But with all that money, he couldn't, he couldn't spend it all. So he decides, you know, I'll start playing poker. Starts playing poker in the poker rooms in, in, in California and eventually kind of gets worn out with that and goes over to Las Vegas, starts playing poker in the Las Vegas poker rooms. Sitting there at a Las Vegas poker table, he starts asking himself some questions. This is how it reads. It's, I, I started to force myself to think again about what I was trying to get out of life. I asked myself what I was trying to accomplish, what I wanted to do, and whether I should be sitting at a different table. From my poker experience, I knew it was never too late to change tables. I realized that once I had learned the basics of poker, I wasn't really building anything by spending endless hours in casinos playing the game. I realized that I needed to be doing something more fulfilling and that maybe I was no longer playing the right game. After what felt like an intensive summer fling with the the game of poker, I decided it was time for me to move on to something new. It was time for me to change tables. What causes a secular, non-Christian man who has made the dream 
to look at his life and go, I'm still not fulfilled. I'm not fulfilled unless I'm doing, building something. I'm not fulfilled unless I'm working. One of the most restless people on the planet are retired men and women in their first two months. If you've ever met them, they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to, well, how do I fill in my, fill in my calendar? It's no wonder the most retired people, when you talk to them, they say, I don't know how I, had, how I had time for work with all the stuff I'm doing. Now, retirement doesn't afford an opportunity to kick back and drink whatever you want to drink by the next to the beach. It actually is, seems to be a time where men and women have said, I want to go fulfill life now, as if the work before couldn't fulfill them. I hope by the end of our conversation in this series that that's not the case for any of us in the room. But why is it that people sit down when they have a disability and it hurts and they can't move, but everything in them just feels awful because they can't do something. And so they, they make small gardens in their yards and they do whatever they can to do something productive. Guys, it's because it is built into us to work. It is a necessity. It's no wonder God had to limit it. In the book of Exodus, in the top tens, uh, the top ten commandments, one of, the, one of them is this one. It says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, any, all that stuff. So here's what's interesting. Look at this verse again. Notice, first of all, that work is so healthy for us, God didn't play the balance game. You know, we as Americans, having been influenced by the Buddhist perspective, think things as yin and yang. they got to be balanced. we got to balance the dark force with the light force. You know how that's Star Wars stuff. And the bottom line is that that's not how God works here. He says, work is so good for you, six days and one day off. Not three and three, three and a half, three and a half. No, six and one, six and one. Why? Because that's how God did it. Six days of work and a day of rest. Six days of work and a day of rest. What's interesting about this is that this means this is healthy for us. This doesn't harm us. You try to take in something as much as we take in work. Of anything else, food. I mean, imagine eating all day long like you work. It would be unhealthy. Even to exercise all day long like that. Work is one of the few things, the creative venture, the, the processing of your mind and the output of what, who you are is so healthy. God said, I got to give you a day off because otherwise you guys will keep going. You'll go 7, 12, 42, and you won't stop, which is what's happening in America in a lot of cases. So he says, no, you're going to stop and you shall not do any work. Have you ever tried to take a day off where you don't do any work? Oh, you'll be so frustrated the next time you try this. Because you're like, I gotta clean the, I gotta clean. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta write something. I gotta, I gotta, and it's not just turning on TV and vegging out. It's like, hey, an old day of watching movies. No. This was so that you would worship God. So that leisure doesn't become an idol. And so that work doesn't become an idol. But that you would worship God in your work and in your rest. Work has never been intended to be God. And neither has rest. And so they're placed in this manner to teach us that yes, we're to make something of this world, but what we were not to make is something 
evil. And so we'll get into that again more next week. But the bottom line is that this is these, these boundaries. Once we have this habit, this healthy habit of six and one, what we're going to run into is the ability to look back and enjoy what we've made. We should be here worshiping God because we're able to rest together as a group. And so it goes into this very detailed piece, and I won't be able to get into all that, but I do want to point out what kind of work we do do. What is our job description? God has given it to you right here in verse 28. He gives us our... He says, and God blessed them, speaking of male and female, man and woman, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And all the men said, amen. Um, The point here is though, it's not just simply fill the earth with people. It's to fill the earth with society, with culture. This is actually called the cultural mandate. This is, this is where we have dominion over the fish. We subdue it. What's all this terminology about? This is the terminology. God has called us to build and make this thing called culture out of the world. We're the only creature that walks up to something and makes it better. You realize that? You say, no, we're destroying the earth. Yes, we're not talking about the fall, but look at your pet. Put your pet in the natural wild environment. They don't, la- they don't live that long, comparatively. And they definitely don't understand human language. Go to a wolf and tell him to sit and see how well that goes. You tell your dog who's been trained to sit, which, by the way, we can train the animal. That's bizarre. To the point where my kids are like, hey, on Funniest Home Videos the other night, we saw a dog. They said, I love mama. I'm like, what? (laughs) Got English-speaking animals. In fact, what's strange, have you ever ever realized this? Some animals don't respond to English. They only respond to Spanish or German. They know languages to an extent. Not because it's in them, but because we've brought it to them. We have formed something in this world. We fill it and form it. We are God's underservants creating a world which was built as culture. What's culture? Well, you go on in chapter 2 as you read it when you get home. You'll see that God put man in a garden to cultivate the garden. Why do we use the word cultivate and culture together? There's a weirdly weird word in there that us Americans aren't comfortable with, and it's the word cult. You go, oh, Greg, you can't say cult in the church. That's not a good idea. No, 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 you got to understand. Let's take the word for what it meant. The cultus is the Latin term, which means basically that the expression of worship. That actually when you take and make something in this world, when you go to work, when you engage with your hands, when you engage with your mind, when you make something of this world, when you serve someone in this world, what you are actually doing is expressing your Christianity. That is why being thoughtless about our work is so dangerous because it is to be an expression of what you worship. Think about it. Look around. What are the massive goods and services that we as Americans produce? And you'll quickly discover what we worship. What industries make the maximum amount of money and you'll quickly discover what we worship and what the core of our idolatry is is. And it's because culture is an expression of what we worship. And as a church, there is an actual expression of what we worship that should come through everything that we do. 
That's what the word fill, subdue, and dominion have. This is pre-fall. This isn't we're raping and pillaging the land. This is we come up to a wild oak tree and we prune it and trim it so that all of it gets light and it grows stronger and more beautiful. This is taking the animal and training it so that it lives longer and feeding it well. This is called taking the landscape around us and, and using it correctly so that it produces beauty and glory. It's making the world into a garden. Forming and filling it discovering the essence of science and applying it not to blow people up with bombs, but to find energy so that you don't destroy other aspects. The beauty and the wonder of getting to work is incredible. And so it calls us to this depth. It helps us to see that what we are doing is expressing worship. And so work has good and powerful purposes that God intended for us to have. And these good and powerful purposes begin with this simple thought. Number one is so it's a service to other people. It's a service to other people. It's God working through us to serve and care for others, to provide for other people. It's a work and service to care. It's living out that great commandment. What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is huge. If we start on this side, we see Paul reiterating this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He puts it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the pastor shakes his head happy. I get it. And we go, what's that mean? When you talk about the glory of God, it means showing off God. When you talk about God's glory, it's God going public. When God worked and created the world, we can see what he's like from the world. We can see what he's like from what he's done. When we go out and we work in the world, they see what our God is like by the way that we work. I believe that when a Christian grasps the concept of work, what begins to happen, and we realize that we work because God works, we begin to be grounded. Why do I go to work? Ask yourself that question. Do I go to serve? Am I there to care for the people around me so that I can be a, a minister in my environment? Guess what? There is no sacred, secular divide here. I serve to serve you. You serve to serve others. And those others sometimes are at your workplace. It's the ability to look at your corporate environment and say, this is great. We are doing this. This is our goal. I want to pray for it. How many have prayed for your corporate environment and not the prayer, God, shut this thing down. I hate it. No, not that prayer. And I'm talking about that, that beauty of God. I want this to succeed. I want this to be right because if you will bless this with the right ways, it will treat the other employees better. It will treat the customers better. It will be a good on this earth. Do we have a corporate vision that we pray for that's centered on loving God and loving others? Do we care to honor God so greatly that we're willing to continue our own education and sit there and read and study on how to be better at what we're doing so that we can be actually looked at as some of the stellar people? Now, what's crazy is you don't even have to move up the ladder. Some of us may just be glad to know this stuff to help others move up the ladder. And it's a great honor when they get to the, when a group of them are at the top and they say, we're only here because that guy loved on us like he did. That's showing off the image of God. I'm not talking about finding your own success and your own abilities. It's simply serving others and loving God in the midst of your work environment. In the showing off of your Christian faith in word and deed in everything that you do. I believe that if the church lived up to the vision that was original which is hard because we'll talk about that next week. But if we did, you would have employers knocking on the doors of churches going, do you have anybody here that's unemployed because I really like hiring Christians? They're educated. 
They care not just about the customer, but about the people and us. They keep us grounded on what's right. We've never flourished more. Guys, that's the vision of work. Where we enter in and we create good. We create the good. And we enjoy the exploration of God's world as we do it. Some of you guys are going, I have a really small menial task. You may be finding yourself doing something you don't think is very powerful or very great. But let me tell you about Brother Lawrence. This man, Brother Lawrence, was in a monastery. He didn't have much of a job. He always given division of labor in monasteries. His job was the most menial. He was the dishwasher. Literally sat, washed dishes his entire life. What was interesting is Brother Lawrence had preoccupied himself while washing dishes with one sole aim, and that was to always have God's presence amidst what he was doing. He became so good at this, so thoughtful about this, so incredibly gifted in just practicing God's presence. That's the name of the book that's been written about, that was written from him. His senior monk, the guy who was over him, heard about this, interviewed him, wrote it down in this book called Practicing the Presence of God from a dishwasher in a monastery who simply learned God can be present even in the most menial tasks. Sometimes you may be sitting at a call center and going, I don't know why I'm here. You may be funneling people through an aisle with carts. And you simply ask yourself a question. Can God be present in this? And the God who washed the feet of his students is ready to be there with you. Ready to show you that no job is beneath us. That all of it images him. And that he is there to make significance where oftentimes we don't see it. We'll open our eyes to see why we do work. To serve, perhaps to even Love God. In fact, what's interesting is in the book of Luke, chapter 19, verse 17, this is how powerful work is. Jesus, speaking of this parable, comes to this, and he, at the end of his parable, he says the, that the king looks at his servant and says, Well done, good, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And this is the picture of us being faithful in our work today. God blesses us in eternity. The guys, the way that we work today, the character we form today, the way we represent God today is actually going to resound to his glory forever and ever in the kingdom of God. Your work is not menial. It is good and it is eternal when it is given to God and serving those who are made in his image. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you so much for what you've given us in work. And some of us have just come to realize what it is that we get to participate in. And this is a grand vision, a big thing. Help us to take this in, we pray. You know, this morning, some of you may be here and you may not have a relationship with God. And this may be shocking to you that God works and all this connection here. But I want to encourage you. That though God is a God of work and though human Christians have been called to work well, you don't have a relationship with God through work. What do I mean by that? Maybe you came thinking, I'm going to find out the things I got to do so I can be good with God. 
I got to figure out the things I got to do, the work I got to put myself towards so, so that uh, I can go to heaven. And I want to tell you something. There's no work you can do to get into heaven. There is no amount of work and good things that you can do to make God pleased with you. You see, our sin is there, and he's displeased with our sin. And there's no amount of work that can cover that over. He says, that's all dirty rags. Worth, worthless stuff to be thrown in the trash. You say, well, what do we do then? You don't do anything. Instead, what he's done is he's offered you an opportunity. He's given you a gift. See, his son, Jesus Christ, came on this earth knowing that there was no way for us to fix this. And so Jesus came to earth and died on a cross to bear our sin, the mess that we can't clean up. And then he offered Jesus' work on the cross to us as a gift. That if we trusted it, everything that we would need to go to heaven would be given to us freely. And what's beautiful about that is that then Jesus rose from the dead, not just to give us evidence and proof that this is true, but also to show that everything that is attached to Jesus is going to be made right. Your life, work, this world, everything. It's called the resurrection. And when that resurrection happens, God will make right all the mess of this world. And the way that you enter into that is through this gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. Given to you. You don't clean up to earn it. You don't come to church and depend on all your good works in here if you've been a church Christian all your life. No. It is only by trusting the promise that Jesus Christ has given us in his death on the cross. If that's where you're at this morning and you need to receive that gift from God, he is giving it to you. All you have to do is receive it. If it's where you're at and you're willing to receive it right now and give you an opportunity to do that, just by lifting your hand up, showing me, hey, that's me right now. I need that gift. I want to be forgiven of sins. I want Jesus to take that sin away from me. I want to be renewed in that new life. That's where you're at. Awesome. Just with me right now. Begin talking to God. Lay out your sins before him. He knows what they are, but what you're doing is you're, it's called confessing. You're just saying, God, this is what I've done. These are my sins. Begin to lay those out before him. Now what we're going to do is, is one of the most important things. I want you to imagine in your mind that you're taking your sins and you're turning away from them. You're turning to Jesus Christ and, you're, and right now I want you to do this. This is called repentance. You're just saying to Jesus right now, tell him, he, that Jesus, you have my sins. Tell God that you trust that Jesus has taken those on the cross and that you've forgiven Now tell God that you know and you trust that Jesus has risen from the dead. Ask him to make you new. Ask him to come into your life and to lead you from here. God, for those who are praying this prayer, working through this, I ask that you would bless them with your presence. God, for the rest of us who are about to go to work, may you help us answer those questions. Why are we going? What do you want us to do there? 
We ask that you'd help us, lead us, show us the vision that you have, the vision that will be forever and eternity. We submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.